Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the fine folks at Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia, from which all of these panels were recorded at Metatopia 2017. It's also thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers. Now let's get to the show. Episode 182, Replication vs. Reinvention. Presented by Brennan Conway and Kevin Culp. That sounds great. Excellent. Shall we do this? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Hi there, you are at Replication vs. Reinvention. Presented by... Hi, I'm Brendan Conway. Uh, I work with Magpie Games. I'm the writer of Masks a New Generation. Yes. Uh, I am Kevin Culp. I work primarily with Hellgrain Press. I've written Time Watch and Al Hoot Trail, and I'm working on a fantasy gumshoe game right now. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, and so what we're talking about is sort of how you take what could potentially be a tired genre mm-hmm. um, and turn it into something a little bit fresher and more interesting. Yep. Yes? Yep. Excellent. Uh, can someone kill the door? Excellent. Thank you. Sir. So, Everything comes to halt. Dun, dun, dun. I have a question. How does one get started in choosing between reimagination and uh, replication? Nice. Uh, so, yeah, uh, just to quickly also talk about what these terms could mean so we have a useful starting point. Thank God you're here. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Try to help. Uh, so, replication. Uh, means, like in this context, the idea of I'm going to create a game that will consistently reproduce a particular existing genre and or work of art. So even a greater sense of replication is I want to create a game that just is Stranger Things. I'm not even worried about a new version of Stranger Things. I'm not worried about a unique version of Stranger Things. I literally want a game that will reproduce those children on those bikes with Eleven and, you know, the monster and yeah. that thing. That is the height of replication, producing, reproducing an exact specific show. Yeah. Pulling away from the farthest end of that pole is obviously the kind of thing that Stranger Things is. And then that sort of general genre of kids in an 80s movie and then pulling further back. Whereas reinvention is the side where it goes... Uh, I mean, at the farthest extreme of that is invention. I'm going to do something nobody's ever done, which, as we all know, does not happen. Everything you do has been done in some capacity. But it's that idea of trying to put things together in a brand new way, trying to formulate new elements, uh, trying to make it distinctive from any existing thing as much as you possibly can. Uh, And so the two poles are sort of pulling against each other. So as an answer to your question, how do you pick which one you start with? In some ways, I think, for me, the answer comes down to uh, whatever immediately calls you is the right way to go. So, like, if you're like, I have a brand, I I really want to do Stranger Things, great, go for Stranger Things. I really have a brand new idea that I want to do on my own, great, let's do a brand new idea. But I think the core of the overarching design process between these two poles is you have to let the other one pull you in its direction. If you start off with Stranger Things, you don't want to end up purely reproducing Stranger Things. You want to get pulled in the direction of reinvention, of adding more nuance, of adding more characteristics to it. If you start at the pole of a brand new thing, you need to get pulled in the direction of 
but what about it is familiar? What about it is reproducing something I can recognize? And it's a two-way street, right? I tend to have secret design goals when I make a game. So for instance, when I made Time Watch, my secret design goal was to make a game where I could run Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension uh, without having to pay anyone the copyright fees. Um, yes. <laughs> right? The game that I'm working on right now, although it's a fantasy sort of sword and sorcery, Fafford and the Grey Mousery game, uh, the secret design goal is you can take that magic system and you can run Avatar, the last airbender, seamlessly right. um, if you chose to do so. Um, the, uh, and so I think that it's important to kind of keep in mind both what your target is that you're hoping to approach and emulate and also the things that you love in existing properties to find some balance between the two. Yes, exactly. So let me ask you this, right? So you created Masks, the New Generation. Yep. How is Masks, the New Generation different from Masks, different from other superhero games? Yeah. Uh, so Masks, the New Generation is actually, to a certain extent, it started with pure replication. Uh, like the very first thing that ever happened was... Uh, just seeing... Tell them what Mass of New Generation is. Yeah, I apologize. Yes, yeah. Mass of the New Generation is a Powered by the Apocalypse game of teenage superheroes. Uh, they're trying to figure out who they are in the world that has a ton of superheroes around them. Adults telling them who they are and who they should be. And so you're punching robotic dinosaurs and going home to mom telling you that you didn't do your homework. That kind of thing. Um, do your damn homework. Baby. Do your damn homework. That's right. Uh, so Mass started off just because there was a comic book cover from one particular comic book of like the, the female clone of... Wolverine kissing the time-warped younger version of Cyclops, and I was like, this is so ridiculous, insane, and over the top, and I want a way to replicate this. I want a game that could produce this moment. Uh, so that was, it started purely in this, I want replication uh, sense, and then over time, I consumed the media. I consumed Young Justice and Young Avengers, uh, and that was still, I wanted to reproduce Young Justice and Young Avengers. I wanted to be, have a game that could make these things. And as things stand uh, right now, as it went through the process and I worked on it more and more and more, that is still a core element and that's how I'll pitch it. Do you like Young Justice? Well then, Masks is a great game that will reproduce that. And it's different from a lot of superhero games because I can't say that for, do you like Avengers? Eh, I mean, there's it definitely overlap, but it might not be the same thing because the Avengers are at a different level of that world. Uh, but the reinvention part of it came in at a certain stage when I realized it does not perfectly reproduce Young Avengers at all. The, specifically, this Kieran Gillen run for one year, it's a very particular model style. And Masks gets close, there's shared elements, but it doesn't reproduce it the same way it doesn't reproduce Avengers. Uh, Masks doesn't reproduce Young Justice in the same exact way. Um, so what way has your game up sort of separated from the inspiration of the original core material to become its own unique thing. Like D&D does, D&D is not a fantasy game, right? D&D yep. um, doesn't emulate fantasy, it emulates D&D, really. Um, and, and those are two separate things. Totally. So, so for yours, like, how is Mass, uh, how is the new generation um, created its own thing separate from the source material? Yeah, totally. Um, at this stage, that, that specific thing is such a strong focus on uh, you're shifting identity and the idea of evolving out of this once you've determined what your identity is. Mm -hmm. The idea of pressing back against a world that is telling you who it is, but specifically as a generational context. Uh, and to be specific, the thing that brought it into its own world in some ways was when I started thinking about uh, something a little bit more personal to me and I tried to shove it in there and I tried to think about like, what I had experienced as a teenager for in my particular life and certain expectations and how I never even reacted to those. I just followed the mold and and trying to in some way work that into the story made that 
the core of the entire experience. So yes, there's robots and dinosaurs, and yes, that's mm. grand times, but the thing that really makes it particular compared to everything else is that emphasis upon uh, the expectations leveled on you by generations before you and how those either shape you or how you rebel against those to shape yourself. That is hopefully me personally being poured into it and producing an act of reinvention by virtue of re-aiming the river of the game. For me, uh, so I wrote a game called Time Watch, which is a gumshoe time travel game. Um, uh, which uh, John right there wrote a yeah. section. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the uh, so originally the concept of Time Watch came. I was playing a game with Night Spy Agents, which is a super spy game, and I had fond memories of a game called Time Master from the 1980s. Anyone ever played Time Master? Okay, Time Master was a great game with a very 1980s rule set. Very 1980s. Oh, and I walked out of that Night Spy Agents game, and I said, God. I wish I could have something that's just like this, but with that, but like with time travel. And we were sitting down at lunch. And by the end of lunch, we had three or four core game mechanics. I'm like, we, like, this is not just doable. This is amazing. And the game started off as with the core concept of you are a time cop. When somebody else screws up history, you travel forwards and backwards in time, <clears throat> following the clue path of what happened to figure out how to fix it and set things back on its track. But one of the things I really ran into, and the problem was replication is that this became a game that uh, one of the design goals was let people duplicate pretty much any time travel game, uh, movie or TV show or book story that you've ever read, which involved um, having mechanics that were flexible enough on a scale of sort of dialing up and dialing down things to be able to do Doctor Who or be able to do Quantum Leap or be able to do The Terminator, or be able to do Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And I think that we hit that design goal pretty well, um, but it was much more time-consuming than I think I would have expected in order to get those different genres in there and in place. Mm -hmm. Um, And at its core, right, when I think of it, like, you sure are a time cop, and you sure are (laughs) punching dinosaurs in the face, and there's psychic velociraptors and giant radioactive mutant cockroaches from the future and, you know, and all sorts of things. Um... The uh, but I've seen games that are played incredibly seriously as uh, as heartbreaking. So there's a there's a big range in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, and uh, I want to speak for a moment about the strength of specificity because I think that's one of the biggest places where you can pull it uh, towards the reinvention that makes the game um, a particular thing uh, and adds that element to it that draws people in. Right. So like when I read about Time Watch. Uh, there's definitely a thing to it where the t- the time cop side of it does make it more specific to me mm-hmm. and pulls me in in a particular direction. Uh, for masks, I had a I had a strong um, argument at one stage of the design where I was like, first thing we do in this first session, we're going to talk about the city that you're in because it should be a superhero city. Uh, but I don't want to tell you what superhero city you're in. Uh, let's make it. Let's make it at the fly. And it was fun. It was a good time. People got into it. They had their own cities. And the argument I had was that uh, my fellow magpies argued with me that I should be predefining that city. Mm -hmm. I should be providing a city to start with. And I felt strongly at the time that, no, I I shouldn't. We should do it as the first thing in play. Uh, But their argument was it gives us much stronger grounding if I set that up in advance. And if the players at the table feel strongly 
that they don't like something about it or they want mm-hmm. to do it something else, they'll just do that. And my question is, is the game about cities? Like, is it a game about building cities? It is not. Okay, exactly. then, then, then there's a pretty strong argument to come up with a pre-gen that then people can change. Exactly, exactly. <coughs> Adding that level of specificity then, first of all, makes it distinctly, it's not actually Marvel's New York. It's not actually Metropolis or Gotham. Yeah. So it is not replicating those things. It is something, even though I use those as reference points, it is something different. Uh, and it strengthens that focus to start so people know, cool, this is a little bit more specific, this is different, and this is drawing me in in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Uh, this, and it's, it's interesting. Right now, I'm currently, the game I'm currently working on is, uh, is a fantasy game. And one might argue that there are plenty of fantasy games. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's a sword and sorcery game. And one might argue there are plenty of sword and sorcery games. In fact, I, it started as a Conan game. Which is where the uh, the code name for it is uh, because it's a gumshoe game. The code name of it is, for it is Gumthus, like mighty thus, right? Conan asked muscles. Yes. I read one Conan story where they use the word thus five times in one story. <laughs> He's super muscular, you guys. But um, but it quickly got away from that because the point if you want to play Conan, there's a lot of really good systems out there that will let you play Conan, including one named Conan. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so why would someone buy a game that is um, in a system tailored towards investigative play to play Conan? And the answer is, that's probably a bad thing. Uh, so I had to sort of pull back and re-examine my source material. Am I trying to emulate something or am I trying to build something new? Yep. Um, and really the latter turned out to be the case. And so we, it's now much more sort of Fafford and the Grey Mousery. Mm-hmm. Um, big... A big fantasy city, lots of high politics and backstabbing and uh, and factions going up against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, def- defined classes, um, but ones that are flexible enough that you could create Conan or Fafford or the Grey Mouser or any number of iconic heroes or Elric mm-hmm. or what have you, mm-hmm. but not locking them in locking them into that. And it's really sort of becoming its own its own thing. And I think it's sort of. I'm most. I'm very distinctly not trying to replicate yep. what's out there, and this was true in Time Watch too. I didn't read any other time travel games when I wrote Time Watch. Mm-hmm. I really did not want to accidentally copy things from Doctor Who or Continuum or any of the other things. Mm-hmm. And so I have not read, gone and read. I read lots of fantasy stories, but not the other games out there, um, because I don't trust myself not to not to skew my game towards what they're doing instead of instead yep. of what I want to do. Yep. Yeah. Well, and the, so there's an interesting thing about what you just said that I want to call out for the replication versus reinvention element as well. Uh, you didn't read other games, but you did read lots of other fantasy stories. Yes. And you even, just as you were describing it right now, you shifted from Conan to describing Fawford and the Grey Mouser. Mm-hmm. So there's this element where as you're working in, you'll start at replication and you'll say, I want to create the Conan thing. Mm-hmm. But if you have a vast base of similar material that's different in its own way to pull from, that inherently changes your... Uh, tendency to replicate. It pulls you away from replicating Conan specifically. This is only going to be this one kind of story and pulls you towards similar areas, but that isn't quite in any one bucket. So that's, from my personal experience, that was the thing with Masks where I was like, I started off wanting to do this one cover, and now by the end of it, when I've done Young Justice, Teen Titans, Young Avengers, and I have this whole litany of similar stories to pull from, it is not any one of them because it has been pulled away from any one of them by virtue of me having a big base. So ironically, one of the ways to fight back, or fight back, quote-unquote, 
uh, against replication is to have such a wide base of possible things that you don't replicate any of them. They have formed a new entity in your head. And even in game design, that I find can be useful to describe your game using language that combines two different works because that itself pushes you away from replication. Being able to say... Give me an example. Uh, so, so the game, uh, one of the things I'm playtesting here, I describe as, it is Game of Thrones meets Jane Austen. Okay. Using that description... Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's Armored Society. Oh, I get, try, yeah. I've heard amazing things about Armored Society. Why, thank you yeah. so yes. much. Yeah. Find more at yeah. www. Yeah. Um, that saying that, and obviously holding to that and yeah. making that true through design, but saying that pulls it away from either of them. It can't just be Game of Thrones. It can't just be Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Inherently, it is now not an act of replication of either of those things. It is an act of reinvention of those two things together. And I think that your scope's really important here, right? And how close do you narrow in on a particular topic? Uh, for instance, um, is it uh, what is it? Sorcerer? Like, mm -hmm. um. There's a game, I, and I think it's Sorcerer, where your job during the game, it's a one-shot game, and your job is to climb a mountain and kill a sorcerer, right? And if you want to play anything that doesn't involve climbing a mountain and killing a sorcerer, <laughs> then you shouldn't play that game. But if you want to climb a mountain and kill a sorcerer, like, that is the best damn game <laughs> for climbing a mountain and killing a sorcerer that you can... The Mountain Witch. Yeah. Thank you. There we go. Excellent. Thank you. Um, the uh, Mountain Witch, yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, uh, and so how, and no one else is going to write another game probably that involves climbing a mountain and killing a sorcerer. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, but, I want more, no. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I think it's really a, sort of an interesting question. So the, 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 more, the more you widen your scope, um, the broader it gets. And that's what I found with Time Watch where I went really broad. Um, and so I had to have more mechanics in there. You stayed pretty focused, right? You're focused on the teenagers. We don't care about the parents. We don't care about the super high-powered hero teams in the world. Yep. Um, and so the uh, you can get a lot more sort of uniqueness and specificities on that game on those game mechanics. Yep. Yep. Well, and and the Mountain Witch is interesting as well because if I, I'm not super familiar with it, but if I recall correctly, it pulls from particular movies or particular stories, and it's drawing from those. But it's not those. Yeah. It itself is as specific as you can get, and yet it is still an act of reinvention that combines these stories in a new and different direction um, that is not the original stories. If it literally just recreated an existing kind of movie or an existing kind of pattern, uh, that would be an entirely different game, and it might not have hooked in the same way. So, like, Im imagine a game that only ever recreated Seven Samurai or mm -hmm. Magnificent Seven. That was all it could do. Um, that isn't as intriguing as a game that even one step removed from that says it will create a story like Magnificent Seven in which heroes defend a town. I have a fabulous example of this. How many people have played the game Fiasco? Wow. So, <laughs> oh, all right. So, okay. You have not played Fiasco. Yeah. Okay. So, that, no, no, we're good. Um, so, Fiasco is a game from Jason Morningstar at Bully Pulpit Games, and its job is replicating a very particular kind of movie. Uh, such as movies by the Coen brothers, which like Fargo, where it's they're movies about people with strong ambitions um, making very bad choices. Yep. And so people who want things very much, um, backstabbing and infighting against each other to get those things and making their own situations worse. And that is a great example, because while you could tailor that to be a particular... Um, 
a very particular setting and movie or everything, um, it is broad enough with lots of different play sets that you don't have to you don't have to replicate, right? You can invent your own thing yep. with that same sort of emotional feel that goes along with that. Yep. Yeah. The the reinvention in that one because I mean I think my favorite playset in that is the one where you play a D and D party, uh, and and the fact that you play a D and D party in a Cohen esque movie. It is that moment of it's Game of Thrones meets Jane Austen. It's the Coen Brothers meets D and D, right? You immediately get that yoink, and every single place that they have is a little bit of a yoink. It's oh, two movies meeting. This is the setting of one movie meets the Coen Brothers philosophy. So, in your opinion, when do things get too close to replication? Right? I guess if you are doing a licensed property, mm-hmm. you have to do replication, right? Yes. Does right. You're really you're really targeting something specific. Yep. Yep. Um, so, like. Once you get beyond license parties, like what's too close? For me, I think a, a big piece of it is I want to see just something a little bit more, and I like seeing a little piece of of the designer uh, and their beliefs or their intents pulling it just slightly off from the source material in some capacity. Now I know that's incredibly vague um, because it's that kind of thing of I know it when I see it, right? But it's that feeling of if all this did was reproduce a a movie. I'd be like, cool, that was that movie or that was that uh, TV show that I really enjoyed, but it didn't sing for me, it didn't glow, it didn't explode or leap off the page. Uh, A core example of this I would use is actually Monster Hearts, because Monster Hearts, I can say to you, uh, this is Vampire Diaries. Have you ever watched Vampire Diaries? This is that. Uh, You will like it, it will reproduce Vampire Diaries over and over. And that's true to an extent, but it's also not true because Monster Hearts has its own pieces that ensures it does not simply reproduce Mon- uh, sorry, Vampire Diaries. It pushes it in new and different directions. In particular, I think around queerness, there's a major focus of Monster Hearts that's not necessarily there in Vampire Diaries. It does reinvent that genre. It reinvents that show in a new direction. Uh, and Monster Arts is a pretty high bar, of course. Uh, Monster sure. Arts is, is superb, so it's not necessarily fair to compare, but it is that idea where Monster Arts could be presented purely as reproduction of Vampire Diaries, but it pushes a little bit in a different direction. As a designer, I think it is incumbent on you in order to remember that not everyone will play your game the way that you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you go into this saying, this is my game, um, and you're going to play it like this, and any house rules are bad, and if you hack the game, this is bad, um, then I uh, then that makes me deeply uncomfortable, and I think it sort of limits people's appreciation for your game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you can take that source material and present your vision, you need to put yeah. a cradle and, and, and nourish that vision of what you want your game to be, mm-hmm. but give people the tools or hooks to let them grow above and beyond that, yep. it allows them to give you a gift back by taking what you created and making it even better. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of the, the nourishing as just a metaphor. Like, I, I want to be able to give you the seeds that should germinate in particular directions, but you're the one who's actually bringing the plant to fruition, and you're the one who's trimming the tree to make it look like, I don't know, a dinosaur. We're stuck yeah. in dinosaurs today. Uh. Um, <laughs> but yeah. You, like that's a problem. Like, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, the, there is a moment in the Masks book where I, I, uh, I dealt with so many questions during playtesting. On the playbooks for Masks, there's a section where you pick your abilities. Because since Masks is about emotions, it's the powers are more about fictional positioning. So you pick your abilities. And so many times I got the question of, but I want this power, and it's not on the playbook. Can I take it? And the answer is yes. 
Uh, go ahead, take it. These these are here because these abilities fit the playbook, they fit its issues, they will work, I guarantee it, but if you really want a particular power, there's no reason not to take it, and you know, you can make that work at your table. So in the book, I make specifically clear, I ain't at your table, I'm not gonna hit you with the stick and say, no, you don't get to play anymore, I'm taking the book back. Uh, you reinventing at your table is an automatic element of the process of gameplay. You will always be reinventing whatever is in the text at the table. Uh, for me, the thing for a designer is we also have to reinvent the thing one step between the source material I'm trying to draw you in with and your table. I am an act of reinvention in between. Okay. Let me ask, so John, yes, sir. give people the pitch for, for Noir World. Sure. Uh, noir World is uh, film noir and crime fiction is powered by the apocalypse. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so noir fiction yes. is super broad. So okay. how did you narrow down into what you wanted your game to focus on? And, and can you quickly like yeah. describe that process? Uh, I found the thing in film noir that I wanted to see the most of in play. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then built mechanics around it to support it. Okay. And then everything else became very modular. Mm -hmm. And very, oh, I don't want, uh, for example, the, the easy one. Uh, film noir is incredibly racist and sexist. I don't want any of that. Right. So I just didn't put it in. Right. And uh, film noir is predicated on relationships, character interaction. Mm -hmm. So I made sure those are the strongest mechanics, and then everything drives to and from them. And then mm -hmm. everything else, like, oh, we're in a city and it's raining, is variable and left up to you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I find also very interesting about this is how your game mechanics drive tone and how tone yes. drives game mechanics. Yep. Um, I'll give you a quick example. So, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The thing that people remember from this time travel movie is when they have their future selves drop, ups, drop off stuff for their past selves to use. Remember that? Mm -hmm. um, I knew when I started to figure out Time Watch how that, that was something I wanted up front. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the, the, the gumshoe system, which is an investigative system, my favorite thing about it is an ability called preparedness. And the idea is picking gear is boring. So if you ha want something you don't have, you've got something in your sheet called preparedness, you roll a die, if you succeed, yeah, you brought the thing you want with you. you know, mm -hmm. A gun, a stick, a blanket, I don't care, whatever. In a time travel game, who says you have to bring it with you? So in the game, and as it turns out, if you have been taken captive and you're sitting here at this table tied up and someone is yelling at you and you can say, this is dumb, tomorrow I'm going to go back in time to an hour before now and tape a blaster under the table. I roll my die. If I have not looked under the table, I reach under the table, grab my blaster and shoot the person in the face. Right? And this is a really lovely way that, in that particular case, the game mechanics that already existed really dovetailed beautifully with a fiction mm -hmm. which I wanted to try to create. Mm -hmm. um, and then the problem comes, of course, when you have the opposite of that, where your game mechanics really don't support the fiction that well at all. Um, the, the game I'm working on right now is a fantasy game, right? The worst part, I would argue, in most gum in the gumshoe system as a whole, is that combat isn't super exciting. The damage dice aren't big; it's a little boring. So I'm like, all right, what do you want out of a Conan's like sword and sorcery game? Right? You want really good combat. 
So I gotta, ha I gotta change this. And a big part of the development cycle has been finding ways to adjust that combat system to feel good mm -hmm. when you are stabbing somebody um, with a sword or you're casting sorcery mm -hmm. or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been sort of an interesting process. And there's interesting. There's something interesting John said that is embedded in everything you were talking about. John specifically said, I picked the thing in noir I wanted to see, and I made sure that was repeated, and everything else became maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, and that's like what you are highlighting is the thing I wanted to see. The thing I wanted to see was being able to hide the blaster under the table tomorrow, or the thing I wanted to see was a really good combat system. Picking that thing you want to see out of the original core works is the act of reinvention itself. You are making an active choice that redefines how you are representing that particular genre. So, for instance, it's weird, it would be a strange choice, but if I said the thing I want to see out of Conan is the thieving part, because he does thieve, like, it's an automatic that he's going to fight monsters, it feels like that's the obvious, but if I decided I wanted that to be the core... And maybe then I am more Fofford and the Grey Mauser, but that is a choice. That's an active choice that redefines and reinvents how I'm going to represent that genre that I then, of course, need to reflect through the actual mechanics supporting that choice. Uh, for me, for instance, Young Avengers, I'm going to use that as an example again, for Kieran Gillen, it's a very uh, romantic and or sexy and or, like, these are kids who are, you know, potentially sleeping or kissing each other and... That is a, that's a thing that is in masks, and I want it in masks, but it's a little bit more of this, it might be, it might not be, because it's not the thing that I picked as wanting to be in the game no matter what. Mm -hmm. The thing that is in the game no matter what is the adults looking down on you and telling you what to do. Right. Um, when you are, were reinventing, mm -hmm. did you put anything into your game that you did not love because it had to be there for the genre? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking. Right, so while you're thinking, let me yeah. ask, how many people have made games? How many people have um, put things into their game that they do not love because they thought it had to be there? Just John. Talk to me, John. <laughs> and you as well. Okay, we'll come back to you in a second. Tell me. Uh, I can't stand uh, what transition scenes. Okay. Mm. The, 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 nothing really happens except when it happens to one character. This is the, the PI goes to bed. The... The femme fatale smokes and the camera lingers on her, uh -huh. and it's it's mood, and it doesn't contribute to anybody else's time at the table. So it's it's, it's a nice spotlight, but there are so many of them when mm. you dissect a film or look at something over and over. And I had to put it in there because ultimately we needed that we needed the mood. And if we just cut away and go, okay, you two characters have interacted, now we're going to move to two more characters. It feels very stiff, very janky. Okay. So mm -hmm. I put them in there, but I'm not pleased with it and normally when I run the game or when the game is run uh, and I'm in the room I sort of like steer people like oh just, just what happens next right um, but mm. if, if people are home can do whatever because I'm not in their house so they can, you know, <laughs> they can linger on the lady smoking a cigarette for an hour I don't care <laughs> uh, if, I, if I can ask what did, you, what did you include that you didn't love well, I guess mine is more like a replication instead of a reinvention. Uh -huh. so I'm, I'm adapting some comic books into my game. Okay. Some specific comic books. Um, it's not that I don't like that I had to put it, but I think like I had to put too much to replicate enough mm -hmm. I'm trying to to bring. So mm. I'm getting this, if 
how much can I put off and still will be the thing I'm replicating? Right. And, and you know, it's a fascinating question. Jason Morningstar, the guy who wrote Fiasco, was saying the other day on social media that he is sick of games where you kill stuff to get things, right? And that, and he's kind of done with those. And he doesn't want to write or play games where people are taking weapons and killing folks. Um, and so he's got a different focus now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that sometimes, a lot of times, people put in combat systems that they don't necessarily love or want in there mm-hmm. um, in order to, because it is expected of people. Right. Yeah, that was actually, like, I originally didn't raise my hand, but I'm, like, thinking about it. Like, my current game that I'm working on is just a board game. Okay. It's supposed to be fast and short. It's a, a fantasy, well, not fantasy, it's Greek mythology fighting monsters. Cool. So if you're a hero and you slay a monster. Right. In the old Greek game. Yeah. And a lot of the feedback I get, because it does have a kind of D&D session vibe, mm-hmm. it's a boss fight, right? A lot of people are like, I want loot. I want gold. I can put <sighs> I want items. Sure. And like, it's not what it's about. Boons, you know? uh-huh. Yeah, like Perseus gets his cloak of darkness and I can put that. But it's like, I don't want to give you items and experience points. I want you to just have this boss fight and have fun and be done. Right. You know, yeah. Like, the incremental advance happens in the combat, uh-huh. not in the, like, I get power up and loot. And yeah. it's kind of the thing is that like, I kind of have to put it in. Like, people want it because their expectations are there and I'm and I keep fighting it because it's just mm-hmm. I, sure I that's not exactly what I'm going for. I hear you well that's like, supplement by the way supplement yeah that's like levels of advancement like uh, my character has to accrue experience mm-hmm. yeah. has to go up in level instead of just being able to tell a story right? yeah that's mm-hmm. there has to there doesn't have to be anything you yeah can pick and choose yeah. one uh, uh, I, I was just going to say that there is a that is a tension that you always have to deal with I think and especially acts of reinvention often are going to tick people off. Um, one of the places there uh, for, for masks is uh, I was thinking about combat and I was thinking about, obviously it's a superhero, you have to be able to punch each other and have that matter in some way. And my particular, um, I will always care for, defend, and advocate for Hawkeye. I am a Hawkeye fan through and through. And it means... That's adorable. <laughs> I know. Think this is what I deal with. Uh, and I needed a way to have Hawkeye in the game and yeah. to have a damage or consequence system that allowed Hawkeye and the Hulk to somehow be represented on the same scale. Right. So combat ch- changed, and instead of worrying about physical harm, it's emotional harm, and it's conditions... And there is there are people who play the game and whose response to it is I don't get it I get punched and then I feel sad, uh-huh. and and it's clearly a point of contention. They were expecting hit points. They wanted damage. They wanted something more physical. And so by reinventing in that moment and saying no no superhero combat in this game is not about that, uh, it has alienated some players. And so there's a cost to it. But the people for whom it works, it works like gangbusters. For, for what it's worth, it's the first Powered by the Apocalypse game that I re- ever really fell in love with, oh, that I really got. Yeah. So, awesome. yeah. Kevin, come on. Uh, <laughs> I haven't played Noir, Noir World yet. Yeah, so, so you're still in the clear. We're good. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's actually true. Um, and in fact, so I ran into this. Um, one of the things that I'm finding in Gumthus is I wanted a game where if you want to play uh, you can play that game in a lot of different ways because there's a lot of different factions you can play as the city watch in this huge um, 
sinking city uh, dealing with criminal elements. You can play as ancient nobility, running power politics against the commoners as you manipulate the common people to your own good. Um, you can play secret agents of the uh, of the government in order to um, who are manipulating things politically. You can play sneak thieves who are running cons on people. But one of the things I really wanted was the ability to, if you wanted to de-emphasize combat, so how do you then do that? And my decision there was, okay, we need more than a health track for combat. So we put in social combat too, which is basically a morale track is, uh, that parallels health, mm-hmm. and which in you can attack people with your weapons, or you can sway them, and you can defeat bad guys. I've had super powerful bad guys broken down, sobbing in the, like on their knees. Have they been made to feel incredibly guilty about their life choices without anyone ever laying a finger on them? Um, and it was really it was very powerful very good role-playing scenes that worked just fine mechanically, would have worked equally well as if they'd been stabbed a jillion times. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives the players that option. So if you as a... If you're giving your uh, your GMs and your players enough tools that they can either include them or emphasize them or de-emphasize them to create the kind of game that they want mm-hmm. to, um, to replicate if they want to replicate a game, mm-hmm. or they can just sort of trust you and run it run it as, uh, as it's written. Yeah. There... It's like one word almost out of what you said, but in particular, I really want to highlight it because it's it's been in the entire discussion that we've been having here, um, and it is one of the core pieces of this that you as designers, we as designers, should just own. You said, I decided to. Mm-hmm. We make decisions, and they are active decisions. They're not just like, I am trying to replicate this so it must be this way, in some passive way, as if the genre demands that it exists in a... That is yeah. not true. You make decisions yeah. as a designer consistently about the way to re- represent things, about the way to have themes be explored or be brought into the game. You make active decisions, and by making those decisions, you are reinventing, and you are cutting other things off. You are inherently, every time you make a decision, you're choosing one fork in the path over the other. Those decisions own them, uh, live with them, and really like go for them that's the soul of reinvention is making a decision about this thing you are trying to recreate that then turns it into the thing you decided it should be over what it must be i will make a pretty strong case that at least for me the hardest part of design um is fo- is um constraints is focusing in on what it is you want so if you tell me hey kevin i want you to make a game about a one-legged dwarf i'll be like yes and three hours later, like uh, we can play that game. Right. If you say, hey, Kevin, I want you to go make a game, you will find me sobbing in the corner without any idea of what to do <laughs> because I have so many possibilities, I can't yes. focus in on one. So when you are creating, one of the really nice things about reinvention is you can start by saying, what design choices do I need to make in order to replicate this idea? And once you've got those, you can then expand outwork, either cutting or adding, in order to sort of get to where you want to be, where you're reinventing it instead of replicating it. Mm-hmm. But for me, at least, having that vision provides the design constraints that are very useful. Because um, without those, I just sit there and go, ah, a lot. I want to play a game about one-legged dwarves. I can do that. We can yeah, do that. Let's do that. Well, all right, we'll do that next year. <laughs> next year, yeah. Metatopia. Yeah. Um, so the... Um, and I will also make the cause that you should, when you are designing, there is a really good case for design stuff that you love. 
right? That yeah. just makes you happy. Yeah. Um, if you are creating a game and it doesn't make you happy, like a rule, like every time you play, you go through a particular role, you're like, oh, that's kind of annoying, but I guess, yeah. right? Give us a pretty serious thought to see what happens if you just chop that crap out and just run it without those rules at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this out loud and I'm thinking about the things I have to change about my design right now and I'm super angry. Um, <laughs> But it, but I really do think that's true because um, if you get if you create a game you don't and I've seen you sort of struggle with this somewhat John and I, I'm sorry to call you out right no, but do. Um, but if you are creating your game for other people for the mythical other person and you care so much about what other people care about your game you are going to kill yourself you're going to create a game that is sort of wishy washy um, or that doesn't have the focus that really brings you joy. If you create a game that you love and you really enjoy playing and that it sings to your heart, um, other people are going to find that. Yeah. They're going to pick up on your passion yeah. and it's going to speak to them too. Not everybody, but that's okay. You don't have to, it, it's, not, it's not Pathfinder, right? You don't have to make it for everybody. Yeah, plus one, yeah. thumbs up. Yeah. yeah. That's, it, I keep having this feeling at this stage, especially for me, when I play games and, and I'll play with the designer and the designer says to me, uh, no, but I don't. I don't want to limit your choices because your choices are so so great. And in certain contexts, that's that's helpful. Yeah, sure. But I want to know what excites you, and I want you to guide me because your excitement as the designer mm-hmm. is gonna filter through to me and make me more excited. I am interested in what you find exciting about this genre, this mm-hmm. TV show, and that's gonna pop for me because it excites you so much. And if it doesn't, if somebody, if it's not their jam. The good news is we live in a world with lots of RPGs now. They can probably find something else that is their jam. Whenever I feel discouraged, I go to Amazon. I read the one-star reviews on my favorite books. (laughs) Um, And you know what? If somebody didn't like that book and I love that book, then screw it. Like, it's okay if someone doesn't like my stuff, too. Yep. Uh, Exactly. Do we want to... We have 15 minutes left. Want to go to questions? Yes, please. Let's go to questions. Anyone have questions? Any questions? We solved every problem in the world. Shoot. So, a lot of your discussions Oh, so that's a great question. Yes. Yeah. So may may I start? Go for it. Sure. Um, Because I am a narrative guy and not a mechanics guy, and I have traditionally thought of myself as a shitty mechanics designer, less so nowadays, but um, I have wholesale, when I decided I wanted to do this game, I went to a publisher who had the system that I wanted to use, and I said, hey, can I just use these rules? Um, And and I use that as my framework. Um, There are people... Uh, who are really good at sort of building rule set whole, you know, from the ground up and doing stuff. Uh, that's not me, or at least it hasn't been me yet. And so I am certainly more, I am happier replicating rules than customizing those rules to fit the theme that I want to fit. I cut out the stuff that doesn't reinforce the tone I'm going for. I add things that do reinforce it, and I don't feel any guilt about that whatsoever. Now, mind you, like I've like I've got buy-in from the publisher that that it's cool, and that's and there's OGL or I'm hired by them or whatever. Um, but I think that that is a pretty solid way to go to build upon an established, licensed framework if that framework supports your vision. And and to emphasize uh, part of what you're saying, Kevin, is there are pieces you just said there are pieces of the rules that really don't support a thing, right. and there are pieces of the rules that. Uh, you add in order to support it. Mm-hmm. So even in acting within an existing framework, 
there is an acknowledgement that that framework has effects and then dealing with those effects and understanding that, cool, so it's not quite what I thought it was at the beginning, but that's totally fine. It's yeah. not Conan. It turns out to be Fawford and the Grey Mouser. Yeah. That's awesome. But the core of it becomes that acknowledgement that when you replicate a game mechanic, it is a choice that then has consequences. Those game mechanics are never neutral. They will, they will change something. They will change the way players act. They will change the way players think. In some way, you have just made a choice that changes the thing you have made. So as long as you acknowledge or know what those effects are, it makes perfect sense to replicate and own those changes. The trouble mm -hmm. comes in when you're like, I'm going to pull d20 and attack rolls and AC and not acknowledge that that stuff immediately is going to have a consequence on how it plays. And I'm surprised why people aren't talking to each other. Um, when all the mechanics I've pulled in are all about hitting each other with swords. Yeah. As long as you know the choices you're making, those choices will construct a thing that is yours, and you can own that. The key is to know what those choices are. You don't have to make things from the ground up if that's not your goal. I have been fascinated by to what extent your game mechanics, and even just the names of a game mechanic, will influence how players play. Yep. Take Gumshoe, for instance. One of my complaints or challenges with sort of traditional Gumshoe games, there's too many abilities. There's a lot of really specific abilities. Um, I really like a game where you have very general abilities because each one is used more, um, and you have a lot more flexibility, and it's a lot faster to get started. Mm -hmm. And so when I started building Time Watch, the first thing I did was literally cut about half of the standard abilities, combining them into other things. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I've seen is if you, for instance, um, there's an ability that tells you when someone's lying. A standard name for that in Gumshoe is Bullshit Detector. Um, that is appropriate for certain genres. Yep. That is not appropriate, for instance, for the fantasy genre, yep. right? Um, and you find people reacting very differently between like bullshit detector and liars tell mm -hmm. um, when 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 seeing that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, there is a the notice of, or actually the trivia ability in Gumshoe in my game. I have renamed forgotten forgotten lore, right? Because and that will sort of affect to how much and to what extent people use them. It's only a name change, really, but it carries a lot of weight. Yep. Um, Yep. I mean, on a very simplistic level, imagine a fate hack and the difference between having a single skill called combat and having melee and shoot yep. and uh, defend or some kind of defensive skill. And even just those name changes will have an immediate effect. So using fate is a great and helpful system, but own those choices because yeah. they will have an effect. And do not be afraid to chop out every single <laughs> rule that does not uh, sing to you. If it is, like I asked you before, man, is it a game about building cities? Yeah. If it's not a game about building cities, maybe you don't need a city, but a subsidy, sub uh, uh, a city building thing emphasized. Yeah. In the rule. Yep. Um, and, yeah. 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 yeah um, going back to naming a mechanic and having it have an impact. Do you think that's because of the implication of the word, what the word means, or is it is that another way we reinforce tone? Because um, I'll shamelessly self plug. One of the stats in in the war world is gams. Okay. Because it is suggestive of tone and it conveys a thing. So you've got you know brains, gams, moxie, and risk. Mm -hmm. These are all elements that help sell. And, and gams in this case have been used as physical attractiveness. Physical attractiveness. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas brains is thinking and intelligence and risk is your ability to do something stupid moxie is your social and your charisma and your development mm -hmm. and you add them because I play them apparently. <laughs> uh, some of them yeah some yeah. of them use a fourth stat but it helps convey rather than say intelligence which gives a certain right. connotation to the reader player yep. it, um, it 
doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like something that makes me feel more like my stuff. Yeah, and I got that from Second Edition Paranoia, right? Where yep. Second Edition Paranoia used Moxie and Hutzpah. Yeah. Um, the and that tells me something about the game. Yep. I think I think it's. I mean, just to jump in. I think it's Please. interesting. Like games definitely is like I'm using this to get my way. As you know, where charisma in a you know a traditional like yep. be like. Well, you know, it's a different type of... A lot of times physical attractiveness fits in there, but it's yeah. just, you know, whatever. Yeah, yes. The, I mean, this is... Uh, since that's my uh, area of expertise, I'm always inclined to turn things towards Powered games? by the Apocalypse games. Towards games as well. Okay, they well. are my area of expertise. But uh, if you... Like, all the Powered by the Apocalypse games, if you just line their stats up next to each other, you can kind of decipher elements of what that game is about just by virtue of those word choices. So even if the ideas are the same, like a sharp stat has equivalents in other games it's still sharp in Apocalypse World which says something it's still hot mm-hmm. in Apocalypse World which again says something different from Gams or from Charisma right. um, these choices matter for tone for immediately what they suggest to me the player and for what they tell me the game is about yeah. and, I, and, you know, and if you name it poorly it means that people are less likely to pick that thing yep. which is surprising but true even though if it's mechanically equal yep yeah yeah, which is kind of neat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? We are good. You guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the Amazon uses GAMS. Oh, nice. That's good. <laughs> or maybe just we didn't have that. Yeah. Thank you, sir. What a joy. Thanks. That's great. That's fun. I uh, an hour ago I didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, I, and I was sitting I was sitting with folks and they uh, just show up and like not know what I'm going to talk about. We'll just put a black. We were having a discussion where we had a. It worked out.